Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Forever Student. My name is Stefan Miller, and today you'll be listening to an episode with Dr. Nas Jafari. He is a functional medicine practitioner, a health and wellness advocate, a family medicine consultant, and medical director at DNA Health Center right here in Dubai. We had him on the show before where we spoke about timeless ways to take care of your general health. If you haven't listened to that yet, check out episode 15. Today, we're jumping into the topic of stress. We all suffer from stress in some shape or form. And I thought it would be a good idea to bring him on to give us pointers across mental wellness, exercise, sleep, nutrition, and supplementation, all to mitigate stress as well as possible. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Nas, welcome to The Forever Student. Thanks, uh, buddy. Good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. Round two. Last time we uh, spoke about general health and you gave us some fantastic insights and tips on ways to effectively manage and improve our well-being. This time, we thought it would be best to focus a bit on, on stress management. I mean, we all face stress in our lives and it obviously depends on um, on the time frame. It depends on the person. But I think what we wanted to get into today are just some general tips and insights from your end on how to manage stress impactfully and effectively. And I think the first question would be like, what are some personal tactics that you have to manage it effectively? Sure. Yeah. More, more than happy to. So, well, I, you know, I think this is very pertinent because since we last spoke, a lot's happened. Um, there's that thing I think called COVID and, um, there's no doubt that with that backdrop, um, most of us, I won't say all, but you know, most of us, significant proportion of us have probably led more stressful lives. And you know, you, we could probably talk all day about the sort of mechanisms behind that and kind of contributing to that. But I think on a fundamental level, the social isolation um, and, and, and on a very simple level, not being able to touch people and surround ourselves with people is completely against um, how we evolved to live. Um, it's it's well known at the opposite end of the spectrum that, you know, to put it another way, you know, people who live longer, happier lives have better connections, um, more relationships, um, less chronic disease, ultimately. And so there's been this shift to social isolation. And I think on top of that, uh, stress associated with an anxiety linked to uncertainty. So you know, whilst human beings like some degree of uncertainty to keep things exciting, there's definitely subconsciously, a, a, certainly a level of certainty that we need in our lives to keep us you know, in a, in a good state of mind. And I think that's been thrown out the window for a lot of us. And, you know, I don't know whether it's coincidental given the time or stage in my life and, you know, the things that are going on right now. And, and, and I, it probably is in the sense that, you know, when you hit your late thirties, early forties, you kind of in the swing of things with your career, it's about the time for a lot of people where, you know, you, you're growing your family and you have commitments that side. Uh, you know, being a, an expatriate as well uh, and, and having your livelihood tied to living here 
also adds a kind of another layer of anxiety. You know, there's 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 a lot going on, and 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 that's what I felt in in my life and on a personal level. And coming back to what I was saying about was it a coincidence that I started to recognize stress more, or was it recognizing stress more, or was I actually stressed? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, because I, I think that's an important point. You need to have insight. You, you need to be able to sort of take a step back and recognize that you're stressed to whatever degree, and, and then you're able to mitigate stress. And we'll go on to talk about sort of ways of doing that. But on a personal level, I've, ne- I've never been good at the mindfulness type of inf- interventions, which you hear a lot of people talk about. And I'll hold my hands up and, and admit that I've, it's like anything you have to practice it it's not i think people just assume that it's just something that you can go into straight away and do effectively i mean it requires training it requires exercise uh there's there's no way you could start a new sport and just expect to be able to run with it so i I, i've never been good at that side but uh what i what i have done to try and mitigate stress is try and um not blur the boundaries between kind of my family life and social life and, and work life, which has been more possible because I've been, in, been able to maintain um, a workplace, which may sound funny, but you know what I mean? I mean, a lot of people even to this day are still waking up, working from home, uh, working unfortunately longer hours. It seems that there's this kind of you know need to, compensate by having more and more back-to-back meetings which is what I'm hearing a lot from my clients and not having so much structure in the day therefore you know there's less boundaries but I, I, I feel I've been able to maintain that the other thing is I put a lot more priority and I know we'll talk about this later on on sleep um, I, I've really started to both appreciate sleep a lot more and also see the detrimental effects of not getting good quality sleep. And then, you know, probably actually a little bit outside the box for me, probably my, one of my biggest mitigators of stress is actually cold therapy, which I know we've spoken about before. Uh, I'm fortunate again in my workspace, we have a cold plunge, plunge, plunge pool. Sorry, I just get my words out. And, you know, some, some of the audience will be familiar. I think probably the, the the person in our recent day that's made it a lot more present in, in the mainstream is someone like Wim Hof, who ties in his style of breathing alongside cold therapy. I mean, this is something that's been practiced since the start of man. Um, but but a, a, it has an amazing, certainly on a personal level, and I see it in my clients anecdotally, amazing stress mitigation um, effects, a lot of which is through your your autonomic nervous system and just really putting you in a calmer state. Um, There's also a a kind of significant endorphin release. Uh, And also, I I, I think it's indirectly through improvements in sleep quality. So I I do find that I get a better quality or deeper sleep when I I practice cold therapy. So for me, that's my kind of personal experience. Um, But what works for one person doesn't always work for another and isn't always accessible. Yeah, can we double click on the um, on the cold therapy for a second? Because, I mean, I don't obviously do it the way the way you do it. I don't have access to a plunge pool, but I do have access to a cold shower, and I feel 
just for me in the mornings after a workout, for instance, just doing two minutes of a cold shower is tremendously helpful um, for one, my energy levels, and two, definitely for stress as well, whether it's whether I'm consciously thinking about it or not. Are there any other benefits that are associated with cold therapy that, that you know of or that you've personally sort of uh, witnessed? So, you know, extremes of temperature, so both cold therapy and um, heat therapy, and often the two are used interchangeably. And it's something, again, culturally is practiced uh, in certain places across the world. And I think, you know, the most kind of well-known or, or widely practiced areas will be in, you know, places like the Scandinavian countries, sort of Norway and uh, Sweden, for example. Um, and, and so these are minor stressors on the body. And there is what we call a hormesis effect. So I think the saying is, what, what, what doesn't kill you won't hurt you. I think I've got that saying right in the sense that, um, you know, these micro stresses allow the cells to become a lot more resilient and efficient. And it's a little bit, I, we're all familiar with exercise. I mean, that's what we're doing with exercise and training. So it's, it's a micro stress and you're, you're, you're stressing the mitochondria, the muscle, your, uh, the way your body compartmentalizes energy in just a far more efficient way. So then you adapt um, for when you're exposed to that stress or again. So that's, that's the basis to it. So the, the more of these uh, modalities that you can apply that have this hormetic effect, uh, the better. So, you know, fasting is another one. Um, exercise, cold therapy, heat therapy. It's just that cold therapy and heat therapy just hasn't been on our radar unless you're part of a certain culture that has practiced it across the, the centuries. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, we we talked, well, you touched a little bit on how to spot whether you are stressed or not. Now, what I'm also very curious about is when you look at stress and you have something like chronic stress versus hormesis, for instance, like understanding micro versus macro, are there ways for you to understand that, okay, you know what? I'm at a point now where this is, this is serious or this is chronic. Well, I, I think the traditional answer to that would be no, or it's very difficult. It had been very difficult to, and I, I think that's part of the reason why it hasn't really been on most people's radar, because it was something that we never or didn't consider was as important as something like our nutrition and exercise. And part of that is just because nutrition and exercise gets shoved down our throat. <laughs> uh, but, but also it's something that we've kind of grown up with. You know, you've always been given nutritional advice from whatever source, uh, you know, you'll, you'll play sport or you'll train through your life. So these are, these are things that we've grown up with. But I never remember anyone ever talking to me about sleep or stress growing up. It's only... I've seen it come more, more sort of mainstream in the last sort of decade or, or so. And, and part of that also, it's not just not growing up with it. It's also, we don't, people traditionally have, have, have felt that it's not something that's easily quantifiable. I think that's the other thing. And it's not as easy 
or perceived to be as easy to influence. So, you know, if you come to me with the wrong diet, I just, you know, on a very simplistic level, you, we, you, the perception is you can just change your macros and that's very black and white, quite sort of binary. Whereas stress, because it's just not as easy to quantify or hasn't been as easy to quantify, but also sort of synergistically with the fact that, you know, the, the techniques to mitigate it haven't really been at the forefront of our mind, I think has made it something that's been more difficult to deal with. Um, what I think has helped in recent times is we have a lot more tracking devices now. So one sort of concept which we can now get biofeedback on is this concept of heart rate variability or HRV, which is basically a metric which uh, gives you the time difference between your heartbeats. And, in, in, and it's different to your heart rate. It's the time difference between your heartbeats. So whilst you can have a regular rhythm, there are, there are fractions of seconds of difference between each heartbeat. And, and on a simple sort of a simple explanation is that the, 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 the greater that time difference, um, the, the, the less stressed you are on a kind of physiological level. So you, you probably have used it on a personal level. There are a lot more people who are using them both sort of recreationally or, or just on a sort of personal sort of health optimization level now. And I think that has helped a lot to give people a better understanding of stress. Yeah, I've looked at HRV quite closely. You know, I always struggle to explain it, and I think you did a pretty good job. I look at uh, my WHOOP every morning, and uh, and it gives me an indication of uh, of my HRV. And I I tend to yeah plan almost plan my day according to it, which might not be the best tactic in in some cases, but it definitely gives you a good indication of like where you're at. Um, I wanted to chat to you about physical impl implications of stress because one of the things that i've realized is when i'm very stressed my jaws get tight you know my shoulders go up a little bit um i uh from a breathing standpoint it's definitely not under control so from that angle i mean what have you seen with yourself and with others and um and what are also the like maybe also from a longer term standpoint like, what are the potential implications of it? I think, you know, I need to give you a kind of context, which I think will help understand. So if you think about it, the, the reason we've developed a stress response is to allow us to, to, you will have heard the phrase, fight or flight. And that was so we could, you know, survive if we were kind of in, in a state of danger or, or under attack or whatever it whatever it may be, so we could fight or, or run away or, or climb away or whatever it is we needed to do to defend ourselves and our, our offspring. The important thing about that was that it was, it was only meant to be activated for seconds or minutes, and following which we would go through some form of strenuous activity to then flee that danger. And so... We're all familiar with that stress response. So if I give you the context of, you know, if you have to go, someone has to go in public speak or sit an exam or whatever it may be, you know, get shouted at by your boss or uh, we've all been in a similar scenario like this multiple times and you will be familiar with those, those feelings of needing to, you know, we yourself or, you know, palpitations, uh, you know, visual change, uh, the, the focus, um, breathing rate, 
And these are all physiological changes in the body that are preparing you to fight or flight. And that's all fine in the short term. But the problem is if these systems are activated kind of chronically, then you start to run into problems. So, you know, the reason why you start, your heart starts pumping faster and you start breathing faster is because your body is perceiving that it's going to get attacked, it's going to get injured, and it wants to maintain perfusion and oxygenation of, well, mainly your brain, but your organs in general to survive. That's just one you know, activity. So if that keeps going, well, you can kind of work out what happens. I mean, you'll get high blood pressure. You'll develop cardiovascular disease as a result of the higher blood pressure. If you're wired and in, in that kind of heightened state of alert, well, that starts to remold the brain. You're going to become more anxious, wired, agitated. You can also lead to depression. Um, you'll, your body, I mean, your body changes the way that it, it compartmentalizes energy. So one of the things that your body wants in those situations is, is a higher sugar level so it can use the energy. Well, we all know that if you have chronic higher blood sugar levels, then you can lead to type 2 diabetes. The other thing that happens is that your body wants to store energy and as a long-term reserve, so you start to store fat. Um, you, you know, you, you, your immune system is on heightened alert. Well, again, that's fine in the short term, but if you have this heightened immune system for a long period of time, you get immune dysregulation, and that can lead to more infections or allergies or, in certain circumstances, autoimmune conditions where the body's immune system starts to uh, attack itself. We, as people, go through long bouts of stress, but tend not to really fix it. So we just go with it and we just try to manage it day by day, um, but not necessarily, you know, diving deep into what we can do about it, which could be sleep, exercise, supplementation, nutrition. And those are all topics that we're going to uh, go through. What do you think or what have you seen with, um, with people that you interact with is, is the reason that people don't make that change. So they are very stressed uh, chronically or just long term. And, you know, you give them the solutions to, um, to solving that or mitigating that, but yet they still don't implement that. What do you think the reason is for that? Well, I, I think, first of all, it's important to say that I do see this regularly. And um, I'd say that re regardless of what someone comes to me with, whether it be anything from weight loss, type 2 diabetes, um, you know, mental health issues, uh, gut health issues, a, a large component for a lot of people, I'd say, again, a vast majority of people who come to see me is associated with heightened levels of stress or lack of stress resilience. And remember, we're not just talking about emotional stress. We've spoken about kind of the physical stress and sleep deprivation is a big part of that. But, but and if you don't address those, then you're going to continue down the same state of ill health, unfortunately. I mean, I, I've said this before. I think that stress and sleep are even more important than nutrition and exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant when I say that, but I'm just to make the point that you can, you can have the best diet in the world and be exercising regularly, but if you're not well slept and, you, and, you, and you're highly stressed, you're not going to be in good health. Whereas conversely, you, I'm not saying you're going to be in good health, but you have a lot more flexibility with 
the quality of your nutrition and the levels of exercise you do if you are well stressed and sorry, well slept and mitigate stress. What are the what are the reasons for people not doing it? Well, I, I think it 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 comes back to what we were saying earlier about how it's still whilst it's more on the radar of people now, it's it's still not a obvious. Uh, I, I think it still takes people the time to get their head around the level of impact that it's having on their health. Um, I think also we just assume that doctors or people who are advocates for them or family are having these conversations with them, reinforcing it, but they may not be. A lot of people are just having to sort of work this thing out themselves. So when you haven't got that accountability or guidance, then that makes it harder. And I think also there isn't really the availability of information or physical facilities um, that are accessible to people. I mean, on the flip side, you know, you, there is an argument to say, well, you know, it's all out there and it is all available out there online throughout. But that doesn't, that, you can say that for anything, but that doesn't mean that someone's going to access it. And that's actually a large part, part of the reason why when we built our most recent facility, we actually put a huge amount of space behind offering a lot of these uh, active mindfulness activities because it, it was one thing telling people to go and do them and providing them links, et cetera. But one, we weren't sure whether they were going to go and do it. And, and, and two, we weren't really certain about the quality of, of, or the frequency of what, what they were going to do it. So uh, it just allowed us to control that environment a lot better and, and, and create what well, we all, we're always talk using the word wellness and holistic. And it just allowed us to cast the net around them a bit more and, and, and make sure that people were putting into place these things that we were telling them to do. And it's been a, a very big success so far. So in this space, what type of activities take place? So currently at the moment, we, we, we do everything from, um, yin yoga through to pure breathing exercises to meditation and sound healing. So sound bowls and, and gong therapy. And, you know, there isn't one type of therapy that's suited to everyone. And that's why we're, we, we offer a mix of different modalities and we encourage people to uh, experience them and then decide for them what works for them and whether they continue to, to come to a place to provide it for them or whether they develop the ability to implement it themselves at home or wherever they may be in their own sort of personal space. And that's great. Yeah. And just for everyone to know, this is uh, the latest center that you guys opened, which is um, located in Al-Sakral Avenue, correct? In Dubai. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Cool. Let's get into some simple methods to uh, to decrease stress, but also I think we can talk about it more from a general well-being standpoint. And, and the first and the biggest one that you've mentioned now several times is sleep. Let's talk about sleep. And I think let's first get into um, why it's so important and what, and this is always a touchy subject because we always get a lot of different answers, but what the ideal time frame is uh, for someone to get a good night's sleep. 
Well, yeah, you, you, you do hear different answers to this. And I think the reason for that is that, the, like anything in, in health, is there's no, there is no one answer. Or, or the one answer isn't a specific value. I think it's a range. And from the evidence that I saw, anywhere between seven and a half and nine hours seems to be the sweet spot. And, you know, anything less than that, unless you're in a, a very, very, very small percentage of the population, um, physiologically, you're not designed to get any less sleep than that. Uh, and it seems to be that if you're getting more sleep than that, it has detrimental health effects. Now, whether that be the kind of out, you know, other variables, you know, if someone is sleeping more, are they just lazier and exercising less and also, are they the sorts of person who aren't having a healthy diet? Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, we, whether we have the answer to that, but seven and a half to nine hours seems to be the sweet spot. Okay, fair enough. And how can we go about getting ideal sleep? I know that you um, have some some tricks that you can probably share with us on on how to go about getting those seven and a half to nine hours. Well, I think you, you first of all have to remember that we're, we're, we are the only uh, species of animal that voluntarily uh, destroys our sleep. So then you have to ask yourself, well, how, how, how are we doing that? Well, it's a product of our modern day lifestyle. And you know, we, we, we've, we've spoken about stress. Um, but I, I think two other main factors that, that contribute to disrupted sleep are stimulants are a big one. And I'm mainly talking about kind of coffee and uh, whilst alcohol is not a stimulant, actually the opposite, it, that's also another chemical which seems to disrupt sleep as well. Uh, and I think the third big factor is uh, disrupted sort of circadian rhythm. So uh, our body's just losing sense of day and night. And for most of us, we have at least two out of these three factors, if not all three, impacting the quality of our sleep. So once you start to appreciate that, then you can try and put stress, you know, steps in place to mitigate them. I mean, we've spoken about stress and mitigating stress. Um, well, stimulants, I mean, you know, coffee being the main one, I mean, it's just a case of either eliminating it or, or, or certainly reducing the quantity and also being smart about the timing that you, you have coffee because about a quarter, quarter of it will still be in the system uh, 12 hours later. Um, circadian rhythm is a more difficult one. Uh, and it's just the fact that we live now more like sort of caged animals and you know, our bodies think it's nighttime in the day and daytime at night. Uh, and so it's just about sort of getting out more in the day and putting in techniques to reduce. We've spoken about blue light exposure, a lot of this sort of fake light from our phones, our TV screens, our computer screens, which are interfering with our circadian rhythm and ultimately the signals uh, for sleep. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just going back on your on your coffee point, firstly, it's um, just personally speaking, it's been certainly a timing thing because as soon as I found out about this twelve hour rule and and that twenty five percent of that caffeine is still in your body, then obviously you know the earlier you have your coffee, the better. 
at the same time, I've, I've also read or um, listened to someone talking about having coffee not immediately when you wake up and, and at least letting your body naturally wake up um, for at least 90 minutes before you have your first before you have your first cup. So I think timing that correctly is extremely important. The second thing is, um, yeah, waking up and getting sunlight has been a big game changer for me, specifically from an, one, an energy sense, but two, from um, getting a good night's sleep. I think that was that was pretty important. And then in, in tandem with that, and, and we can get into supplements soon, um, what do you know about, like, so vitamin D, if you have something like, if you take something like vitamin D, is it also something that you're supposed to take, let's call it in the first part of the day, because it does have something to do with your circadian rhythm, or is that not accurate? No, I, I haven't gone that deep into the research on that level in, in, with vitamin D. Um, but, but my thoughts on vitamin D are that I've got no doubt that having a topped up vitamin D with supplementation is, is better than being deficient in vitamin D. But I, I, I definitely don't think that vitamin D supplementation is a substitute for UV light exposure. And I think this has been a big problem in the last two generations because, you know, a lot of, um, you know, skin cancer rates went up and, you know, we realized that a lot of it was to do with um, excessive uh, sun exposure. But there's a difference between healthy sun exposure and, and effectively burning or recurrent burning. And, and so for me, I, I just see vitamin D more as a proxy for someone's sunlight exposure rather than focusing too much on, well, the vitamin D is low, then I can just put them on a vitamin D supplement and they're all, they're all going to be well and protected. I, I definitely don't think it's as simple as that. And we know that different spectrums of light, I mean, light is energy and the different spectrums of light are absorbed by uh, different cells. Uh, they have a preference towards different spectrums of light, even, as, even different different aspects of the, um, mitochondria and red blood cells and white cells and um, you know it, 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 fighting infection or improving immune system resilience we know that it all has an effect and we it's it, mechanistically it has the evidence behind it so that, that's my kind of view of vitamin d levels as to best timing of taking the supplementation i think it's missing the point to a large degree fair and when do you when do you get your sunlight? And I mean, we live in sunny Dubai, so we always have sunlight. But when do you get it, and and how much time do you ideally spend in the sun? Yeah, so I'm a, a lot better at doing it now. I, I don't unfortunately get it sort of first thing in the morning, other than walking to my car. So I don't think that counts. Uh, but I, I'm pretty conscious of taking sort of fifteen minutes out, uh, either late morning or early afternoon. And, you know, I'm fortunate because we're surrounded by beautiful grounds and I can go in the gardens and, you know, we're lucky living here because we get sun all year round. That's definitely something that I've been more conscious of doing. Difficult to, again, quantify what level of impact it's had on my health. Um, but I think I feel better as, as a result of doing it. But it's like anything. I mean, when you, when you start to do these things, you're not always just changing one thing at once. So it's difficult to say is that down to the 
doing more cold therapy or sauna therapy or whatever it may be, or the, or the light is difficult to know. Totally. You briefly touched on, we briefly touched on vitamin D. Um, question on supplementation, which, which supplements do you, do you see that the population is predominantly deficient in? I know vitamin D is certainly one of them. Are there any, are there any others? And, and what's maybe the reason behind that? Uh, I would say that uh, magnesium is, is a very common one. Whilst there are other deficiencies, I think you know people seem to be quite good at reaching for certain supplements, whether it be blindly or directed, and and taking them. And, and so vitamin D has become one of those. So it, I think pretty much it's been laboured to health the last twenty years or so. So your average Joe probably has almost definitely gone out at some point in their lives and bought vitamin D and will have some vitamin D in their cupboard that will be sporadically taking it. Um, uh, to a certain degree, even things like B12 and folate are on people's radar, but magnesium still isn't one of those sort of mainstream supplements. And the, the more, more and more testing that I've done over the years, if someone's not supplementing in magnesium, they're typically more often than not deficient. And a large part of that, I think, just comes down to the fact that the quality of nutrition isn't as good as it used to be, even when you're trying to eat well, just because of all the sort of food handling and preservation and time it takes to get from, you know, farm to table, or even if it's grown in a farm. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so so I, I would say that magnesium is one that I'm commonly sort of putting people on almost by default now because i'm sure you've experienced this typically certain magnesium salts when you take them at night time as well they seem to have very good calmative effect and improve sleep quality there are other salts which are good for for example recovery and, and muscle soreness so um yeah it seems to have a, a, a very good all-round effect and with, without any particular downside so it's one of those it's very difficult to I don't think I've ever seen a magnesium overdose. Yeah. And I mean, you, you nailed it because for me, magnesium has had a tremendous impact on sleep for sure. And I think a bit on muscle recovery as well, if I'm not mistaken, are there particular magnesiums that we should be looking at for sleep? Because I know there's quite a, quite a few different ones out there. So a lot of companies now are creating these mixed sort of salts so they'll have different forms, uh, citrate, malate, 3NA, glycinate. Uh, the, the, because a lot of the clients I see have stress and sleep problems, I do tend to use more of the L3NA or glycinate forms, which seem to work better. Um, citrate, which unfortunately is probably the most common and cheapest one on the shelf, um, doesn't seem to be absorbed as well and typically if you take it in high doses, it gives the side effects of diarrhea, which conversely, I mean, we're, we're, or paradoxically, we actually do use it for the people who are constipated. <laughs> but for your average person who's not constipated, it's probably not the form you should be taking. And then, yeah, for muscle recovery, typically malate. Okay, that makes sense. Now, talking about stress and supplementation, obviously there's a fine line between um, supplementation and, and taking vitamins and minerals that are generally healthy for you um, and in turn help mitigate stress. And then there's the one that are, you know, borderline medication. So I think 
I want to try and distinguish between the two. Which supplements, if any, do you recommend um, the general population to take when it comes to stress management? Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that, you know, everyone uh, is, it's a deeply personal sort of thing. And, uh, and ideally, you do get tested, you do get a blood test done, and you do understand um, which vitamin levels or mineral levels you might be deficient in and, and making decisions accordingly. Yeah, I, I think you, you, that's an important point that you, you made. I think it's very sort of personalized. Um, but I think also we shouldn't be looking at supplements as a substitute for the kind of lifestyle change and addressing the underlying cause. Supplements for me are just a kind of uh, adjunct, which just refine us a few percentage points but can sometimes be the kind of kickstarter for, for people. Um, I, I can't really put my finger on one in particular or one that would apply to everyone. But what I would say is that uh, being deficient in, this is going to be very general, but being deficient in anything to some degree will compromise your stress resilience. I think that's an important thing to say. Um, it's well known, known that B-complex gets very depleted in, in chronic stress. Um, supplements that we use a lot of, uh, one's called, or well, the short term name is, is, or the short name is PS100 or phosphatidylserine, which helps to regulate the stress response very well. And so that's something that I use a lot of. Um, Ayurvedic type of herbs, which often you'll get in uh, complexes, but you, you have to be quite careful with these because you have some supplements which uh, actually boost adrenal response and you have some supplements which, I'm simplifying it, but reduce uh, that kind of uh, adrenal response. So it's definitely not something that I would do or, or certainly do without doing significant research or under guidance. But But that's usually the sort of range of supplements that we're using in those sorts of scenarios. Fair, fair. And I think you're, you're totally right. I mean, for, for people to first start with uh, the low-hanging fruit, which is, which is certainly sleep, and then looking at potential other stressors like alcohol and caffeine that you're taking and trying to reduce that or at least trying to take it at a timely point, um, supplementation, obviously get tested and uh, and consult with people like yourself. Then two more points that, that we want to cover. One is um, exercise. What type of exercise do you do, firstly? Because I know that you, um, you have continued to tweak your routines over the years and, uh, and the frequency behind that. And secondly, what are you know, general things that you can recommend to, uh, to the listeners? Uh, yeah, so I, 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 like anything, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm by no means perfect. I'm probably very far from it. Uh, I, I don't exercise nearly enough. And the, the, the vast majority of the research behind exercise, and we're ultimately talking about health span and lifespan. It's irrefutable that uh, the, the, up to a point, the, the, the level of exercise you do correlates with uh, longevity. Now, the, there is a tipping point and we'll probably, well, I'm not an expert in exercise physiology, so we probably won't even save it for another day. We'll stop there. But 
for me, I found that, and I know it's kind of on yourself to create time, but I, I found that I've had less time to devote to exercise like I used to, which could have been anything up to a couple of hours a session on pretty much most days of the week. Um, that would just be an absolute luxury for me now. So not, not to say that that's required. I think what I've probably done is just become a lot smarter about it and realize that I can fit in more efficient ways of exercising. And for me, I, I created just a very small area in my house where I, I have a home gym and we'll do a lot more of muscle stimulation through resistance training and more hit style interval type sprinting or, or training um, because I'm trying to compress my workouts into now sort of 10, 15 minutes. Um, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, I don't think doing longer types of training or cardio or whatever it is, isn't good for you. Of course it's good for you, but I've just found what works well uh, for me. And um, yeah, I like that you didn't go into the tipping points, given that I just told you I'm going to run hundred K soon. Uh, because that's certainly a tipping point right there. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, finding the right routine for you and obviously just staying very consistent um, with it is super important. And if that means that, you know, you do 10 to 15 minutes of, even if it's a walk or, or just basic, um, basic exercises at home, so be it. But, but any sort of, um, any sort of exercise is exercise at the end of the day. Finally, we just want to get into nutrition. Now, obviously, I don't want to ask you to tell us which type of diet is the best diet for stress. By no means. Um, that doesn't exist. But there's certainly foods that we should probably stay away from. So could we could we kick off with that? Yeah, sure. And and there's always, you know, you can we could talk all day about nutrition in, in most contexts, but I like to keep it simple for people because I, I, I think the, the industry likes uh, playing on the confusion. Uh, but let's try and break it down. I mean, my two main pieces of advice uh, when it comes to stress and nutrition are make sure that you are eating to satisfaction and eating intuitively in terms of volume of food because you want to avoid caloric deficits in high stress scenarios because um, from an evolutionary perspective, high or, or large caloric def deficits or food deprivation were stressful on the body. And, 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 I, and I want to avoid the confusion with kind of fasting and we'll, we'll, we've spoken about fasting before and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it another day. Um, there's a difference between fasting and can continuous caloric restriction, but also there's a difference between fasting in a calm state versus a stressed state. So I'll, I'll leave that there. I think the other thing is it's about quality. So this pretty much goes for most health issues. You need to be eating as close to nature as possible and eating whole real foods, uh, food, foods that carry nutritional value. <clears throat> now, for some people that will be more plant-based, others it'll be more towards a uh, a meat-based diet, but I think the one thing that none of us would disagree on is that it, it needs is the quality. You know, it needs to be less genetically modified or pumped with chemicals or antibiotics or whatever it, whatever it may be. Now, 
you know, there are, there are a lot of observational studies that, that are indicating that improving diversity and volume of plant-based food is important. Um, but, but, but for me, you know, what works well for one doesn't always for another. So it's somewhere along that continuum. But another thing that no one would disagree on is that most man-made foods are unhealthy and are going to affect your overall stress response. So that's one that's, you know, heavily dependent on processed foods, whether that be processed cooking oils or heavily, heavily genetically modified, uh, you know, grains or GMO type grains. Yeah. And if you're looking at, if you're looking at the list, yeah. And if you're looking at the list of ingredients and there's, you know, four or five things that you can't pronounce, then maybe you just put it back on the shelf. Last, last point, which is obviously crucial is hydration. Now, how do we go about getting that right? What is, what is too little? What is too much? Um, and are there any things that we should be adding to our water? Um, like salt, for instance, or lemon? Are there any tips or, or, um, or insights that you have there? Well, so I, I don't think there's a particular volume of water that people need to drink. And you know, that's always a question that gets asked. I, I, I think my view of that is, you know, you, you should try and keep your, your urine as pale yellow as, as possible. But I, I think people think that water is just, you know, you're comparing apples with apples. And given that the body is at least 70 to 80% sort of water, it just tells you how fundamental it is to our functioning. And whilst, again, there's, like anything, there's been pockets of people studying water and different types of water and mineral content of water and toxins in, in water and you're hearing a lot now about microplastics and water that comes in plastic. Um, I think this is probably one of the next things that's going to become spoken about a lot more in the next 10 years or so, much like stress started to get spoken about and cold therapy and heat therapy. I think water is going to be that thing in the next 10 years. And you have to think of water as not just hydration, it's it's carries energy. It's a communication molecule. I mean, our, our cells communicate via the, the, the gel matrix um, and, and, and that gel matrix between an inside and the intracellular and extracellular matrix is heavily dependent on the quality of the water and the mineral content of that water. Similarly, toxins disrupt that matrix. So, yeah, and there's examples of this from around the world. The people you will have heard of people talk about certain therapeutic kind of waters. There are waters at different places in the world, and we've had conversations before about water. And one that I've used historically is uh, the Quinton water, which was discovered by I think an early 20th century physician called Rene Quinton, and it's from a particular. Uh, plankton-rich water from the particular area in South America. And there are, there are hundreds of pages of studies where they've applied this water in various therapeutic interventions from you know, traveler's diarrhea through to chronic ill health and with interesting, invariably positive outcomes. So I, I, I just kind of, you know, we, we, 
I think we'll leave it there when it comes to water. But I, I think people need to start to uh, understand and then appreciate that water is far more just than just than the, the volume of what they're eating and you, sorry, drinking. And as you mentioned, kind of salt. Salt, I think, has been uh, given a bad name, a bit like sun was given a bad name, and it. A lot, it wasn't as simple as that. I, th I think, you know, when people talked about salt, they were really actually referring to refined table salt. It's a bit like the fat sort of issue where people clump fat into one group when there's a very big difference between omega-3 fat and trans fat. Um, I think there's the same with, you know, the quality of the salts that you're getting in your, in your water. And there's no doubt that we need salt in our, in our water as well as we need other minerals. Yeah, 100%. I mean, just from an electrolyte standpoint, it's it's super beneficial. And I've been putting like Himalayan um, Himalayan rock salt in my water every morning. And um, and I think it's doing good stuff for me, for sure. So um, definitely something I would recommend. Any, um, any closing remarks, anything else that you feel is worth sharing? I know we spoke about a variety of topics, stress and non-stress related, but any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners? A lot of what we've spoken about um, may sound quite sort of complicated and novel, but what you tend to find in life is that the most therapeutic interventions are actually readily available and are invariably free. So, you know, if we just learn to live in tune with the sun and, off, and an offshoot of that is sleep better, uh, you know, value and embrace our relationships, which I think is part of a kind of stress resilience, uh, eat whole real food, uh, do some fasting um, and move more, then you're probably going to live or a lot longer and potentially add at least 10 to 15, if not 20 years onto your life. Yeah. It sounds so simple and it actually really is quite simple. I think that's fantastic advice. And Dr. Nas, as always, this was round two. I'm sure we'll have a round three very, very soon, but, but thank you for making the time as always. It's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. No, thanks again for having me. Let's try and not make it so long. For sure. For sure. Sooner next time. Thank you so much. 